Hey everyone, welcome to Big Blend Radio's Vacation Station Travel Writer Show with the International Food, Wine, and Travel Writers Association. We call them IFTWA, and you can go to their website, ifwtwa.org. They're an awesome uh, way to connect writers and photographers with the actual destinations, and we love doing these shows because you never know where we're going to go, but today we're going to Africa with award-winning travel writer and photographer Jamie Edwards. She's a publisher of travel Luxury Travel Notes, on her site, IamLostAndFound.com. When you go on her website, you're going to be stuck there for the rest of the day. So fair warning. So welcome to the show, Jamie. How are you? Thank you. Very happy to be here and talk about uh, one of my favorite places on earth. Africa, I know. It's like they say that, you know, once you touch the soil, it, that little bit of soil gets under your fingernails and it never leaves. And you just want to keep going back home to the motherland. You know, <laughs> it's the motherland, I believe, you know. Absolutely. Um, it it is Africa is amazing and what's really cool is you've been from you, you've done Cape to Cairo pretty much right <laughs> we yeah. have we over the past 20 years have uh been lucky enough to get to Africa uh four or five times uh, I've been to five countries Morocco uh South Africa Botswana Uganda uh it's just been um and each one has been uh really uniquely uh, unique to one another and each one I would go back to in a heartbeat. Oh, me too. Me too. I know we were talking a little bit of South Africa, which is where we, we lived before we came home to the States and Nancy uh, had a magazine over there. And then we said, Oh, we'll never do that. It's so much work. <laughs> it didn't take long for us to be back doing exactly what we belong doing, which is, you know, magazines and now podcasting, but um, you know, South Africa is amazing. Uh, you went to Uganda um, so we were near there when we were in uh, Kenya and, uh, but you went and saw the silverbacks. I mean, that is a bucket list for everybody. I think, you know, it's definitely one of those things I tell people when they say, where should I go when I go to Africa? I don't know if I would recommend Uganda as your first uh, yeah. experience in Africa. I would tend to send someone to South Africa or Botswana um, especially uh, for Southern Africa. Uganda, I think, would be a phase two, uh, although it doesn't have to be depending on your travel style. If you really want to get off the beaten path on your first experience in Africa, Uganda is an incredible place to go. What I think some people don't know about um, tracking the silverbacks is that you go all this way to Uganda and each permit you buy only allows you one hour with the silverbacks. And so if you think about having two treks, two permits over the course of your time there, you're talking about two hours in your entire trip devoted to the silverbacks, uh, at least the actual viewing of them. And so there is so much else to be done in, in Uganda. Um, there's Queen Ashasha National Park where you can see the climbing lions. And those are, I believe, the only place in the world you can see climbing lions. So wow. it's important to realize that there's a lot of other things you'll want to do to fill your time aside from uh, the magnificent uh, silverbacks. 
Well, I think it, you you bring up something really important because, you know, being raised in Kenya and South Africa, everyone is like the big five. And I'm like, dudes, I mean, it just even Impala or I mean, I've got zebras behind me because I just I kind of miss zebras. And, <laughs> you know, I don't kind of I do. And everything to me, it, like the birds, Um, you were talking about the Turacos in one of your articles. And I'm like, oh, we used to have those in our backyard, like. You know, we were, I was really lucky. Like, Well, the birds, you were there when you were young, and I'm impressed that the birds excite you. Because I tell this story, uh, my husband and I went on our first trip to Africa for our honeymoon. And it was actually a surprise honeymoon. I didn't know where I was going until we got to the airport. And we went to Tanzania. And we flew all uh, across the world from Washington. Uh, We were living in New York at the time. And... We were in a Jeep with another couple behind us. We were in our late 20s. The couple behind us in the Jeep were in their probably 40s or 50s. And they were ticking off the birds. On their oh, the birders, seat. yeah. And we were laughing like birds. What are they kidding? Like, we're here to see lions and we're here to see leopards. Well, fast forward when we take our kids 20 years later, and we are the ones ticking off the birds. I think that there is something about a maturity that needs to be involved where you appreciate each of these Mm. beautiful gems of birds when you travel as much as the big five. Oh, and Africa, I mean, just even lilac breasted rollers and, you know, just the cranes and, you know, all of these, you know, just... Oh man, you know, I'm just thinking like the secretary birds and you know the shoe bills. You saw shoe bills and I did. So, when we, seriously. I went to uh, Uganda with a girlfriend of mine and she we had split up for the first part of the trip because she had some work to do in Entebbe. And I went to the Mababa swamp and that's where the elusive shoe bill lives. And I went out on a rickety old boat with the guide. And he had said that you just don't see them all that often. So I was prepared to not see the shoebill, which is the, I call it the most beautiful, ugly bird on earth. Uh, it's worth Googling what it looks like, but we did see one. And even our guide was mesmerized by it. And we sat with it for 20, 30 minutes. And that's the thing about Africa that I always say, no matter where you go in Africa, especially when wildlife is concerned, anything can happen at any given moment. And that is part of the incredible excitement around Africa. Do you, you know, um, just the way I was raised was actually out in the bush and, and you become incredibly observant and you start seeing animals like other people wouldn't just not see them. And we find that in this country too, going to national parks or parks, forests, you know, I've watched people walk right by deer and not see the deer. And I'm like, dudes, you know, you, you miss them. You know, there's a little baby, a little fawn and you just walk right by a fawn and their mommy. How did you miss this? You know? And I think Africa really taught us like observancy. Like even when we're driving somewhere, we'll see something and think it's something and it's not because we're always like looking for birds, wildlife, you know, I don't care what it is, but even if it's not there, we'll find it. (laughs) I agree with you. I think that there is something that makes you become inherently more observant while you're in the bush. And I think a lot of that has to do with there not being a lot of other distractions. Uh, 
the sounds you're more into oh, yeah. because you're not hearing planes overhead. Uh, and of course you have your guides who are, they're, they're such experts in, in discovering and knowing how to find these animals, not just based upon their habits, which of course they know, but for instance, when I was in Uganda also, our guide had looked up in the sky and saw some birds circling in a certain area. He knew that was over a particular lake and he had heard earlier that a hyena had been spotted near there. So he put all of those things together in his mind and had a gut feeling. And of course we go out there and there's a, um, a pack of hyenas eating, um, eating an animal. And we just, all of those cues that he was able to spot led us to be able to witness that. And I think that that is such a beautiful thing that uh, the intelligence surrounding uh, their craft. Mm. Yeah, you get to know animals' habits, you know, and, and birders know you hear a bird before you see the bird. And oftentimes you're checking them off and you still can't see them or, you know, it's really hard <laughs> to even photograph them. Like don't even like here in this country, me and bluebirds, man, I'm, they have me chasing them everywhere and I, I suck at, I don't know, whatever it is. It's just not happening with the photos and bluebirds, but it's so hard. Else, I know. And they, they look at you like, ha ha. <laughs> you know, it's like they know, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's just the, you know, the wilds of Africa are still wild. It's, it's, it's nice to hear, you know, growing up there and watching things, um, develop in this country. I'm finding it very difficult to take photos without human interference, even in our national parks. Like you're saying, it could be, um, here's, you know, chemical trails from airplanes. It could be airplanes going over helicopters and, you know, even the Grand Canyon, they're trying to limit some of that because you can't, it, it just, it does ruin it. And, Humans, uh, and we do a lot of trash. Let, let's just put that up. I don't care where it is. It's us humans are pretty bad. And so even some of the areas, you know, there's, uh, some of the public land is shared with mining and oil derricks. And I mean, it's, so it's kind of this weird balance that we have in this country. And I almost feel like our representatives need to go to Africa to learn something and come back. Right. And yet we're the ones who started the national park system. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. It's true. And I think that we, when we were talking earlier, uh, before you started recording, we were talking about the differences between say South Africa going on safari and a place mm-hmm. like, uh, Botswana. And mm-hmm. one of the things I, uh, think is that a place like Botswana, there's, there's, it seems like there's less tourism or it's just that the Delta is so large and vast that you aren't on top of other tourists all the time, which also I think is a wonderful thing as far as um, someone who might be thinking about where to go on safari or take their family. Um, some of the game parks in South Africa tend to be, and you know better, uh, very uh, controlled and crowded, but you go out into the Okavanga Delta of Botswana and there's just, you could just travel for hours and hours in one direction and not see another vehicle. Yeah. We used to see, you know, see like a, a leopard or something, right. Or even a kill. And then everybody's like, ew, ew. But I'm like, this part of nature and to see a kill happen is pretty exciting. Right. And then you hear them and you talked about that in one of your, the crunch of, you know, and I'm like, yep. Um, even here in the, Akav- uh, not the Akavango swamp. Now I'm like my, I went to Africa completely. Uh, the Okefenokee swamp. Oh, and sure. that, 
now that was a goal for me as a kid in Africa. That was a bucket list destination was the Okefenokee Swamp. And now <laughs> we've been twice. And the last time we were there, there was this massive alligator chewing, just chomping on a turtle or a tortoise. And you could just hear this crunch. And I was like, ooh. And then like I almost got nailed by a uh, cotton mouth. So I thought this was the best day ever. <laughs> like photographing Cottonmouth and he's all like oh yeah and I'm like oh maybe I don't want to do this I think I better stand back you know well it's important to be respectful <laughs> of nature and of wildlife yeah. especially and I think that being on any of these trips whether it's in the U.S. at national parks or uh, uh anywhere else in the world um we're invading their territory we yeah. are we are the ones behind bars in the zoo for lack of a better word we are observing them in their habitat and uh there's always risk involved, but the adventure and what you're talking about, like the excitement around it for certain people. And I'm one of those people. Um, I could sit for two hours watching um, oh. a kill. I could, I could, and I think that that is something else people don't maybe realize about taking their kids on safari or on a trip of this nature is there's a certain age that a child just cannot be patient and sit still to observe mm. uh, wildlife. So I personally, my husband and I decided that we were going to wait until our youngest child was at least 11 or 12 mm. uh, because we wanted it to be a memorable experience. And we wanted to have both of our kids be able to understand the patients involved. Uh, there's a lot of time between finding one animal and another. Uh, there's so much involved patience wise. So I think that that is a big factor when people and ask. It's tiring. Driving on those roads, if at the end of the day, you do want a cocktail or some wine. And that was the thing, you know, but I want to go back to when you're in a busy park. So this is, you know, I don't know how it is GPS and all that out there now, but back in the day, like if there, here comes, if you stop, people want to, here comes everybody. They stopped. What are they looking at? So we'd put out, pull out a map and look like we're just planning our next route. <laughs> so people, we would just be very obvious. We'd like the whole front of the car or Jeep would be like, this is our map. So there's nothing here and they'd drive by and we'd have that animal <laughs> all trick. to ourselves. That's yes. That's, that's just a, you know, and, but it is also about, you know, because some of the Jeeps would get too close and that was back in the day, but in the seventies and eighties, you know, and it, you've got to have some breathing space. And I think we've gotten better over the years. And Africa is really working hard on the poaching. They really, you know, um, and so many, you know, conservation organizations are doing good on that. And I think when people travel to Africa and experience these different wild places and, and have that experience of all these different creatures, whether it's an animal or a bird, right? Or going through a swamp or, you know, going out in the true Bosfeld and seeing like the acacia trees and the sunset or Mount Kilimanjaro all these amazing places and meet the people, which are just these resilient, vibrant humans, you know, and their cultural yes. just vibrancy. Right. And so when you go there, then hopefully you go, Oh, you know what? We do want to do things to prevent poaching and um, wildlife trafficking. And I think it, you know, this kind of tourism can help us as humans understand the world is a big place, man. And we're just this little thing, but we can make, positive differences even I couldn't agree more in fact um my daughter who is now 19 spent uh, a gap year between high school and college 
And part of her gap year was spent um, rehabilitating animals who had been uh, left behind because their parents had been poached. And mm. it's uh there is so much that we can do if we're interested to to help. And that definitely made me enthusiastic about the possibility in the future of going back to Africa, um, not just as a, a spectator, but as someone who um, more towards volunteerism. Uh, mm-hmm. And that would be because I'm so in love with Africa and everything about Africa. That, that's where I'd like to. That's where I'd like to go. Uh, mm-hmm. It's for someone like me who loves wildlife, loves photographing wildlife. Um, that's sort of a natural fit. But I think that there's something for everyone mm-hmm. uh, in Africa. And even beyond safaris, you have um, places like Morocco, uh, the Atlas Mountains, and uh, other parts that of northern Africa that are vibrant and unique and exciting in a completely different way. Yeah, exactly. And when, you know, what got you started actually in travel and then becoming a travel writer and photographer? Uh, it was sort of, it's sort of become the second life for me. I started out my career in design and advertising in New York. Um, I spent 20 years, um, working at advertising agencies and graphic design firms. And then my family, my husband had a opportunity to move to Tokyo. So we, left New York for four years. We brought our two kids to Tokyo and had a wonderful time exploring. We had already had the travel bug. My husband and I were already big travelers. So we looked at this Tokyo experience as a way to really get under Southeast Asia and explore it, which which we did. And then um, when we moved back to the United States, uh, where we live in D.C., um, a girlfriend of mine had said that people are always asking you advice on travel. Where would you like, where should I go to have dinner in Buenos Aires? Where do you recommend a hotel in Iceland? So she said, why don't you put it all together in a blog? And since I wasn't working anymore and my kids were a bit older, I spent uh, a year putting it together and launched it. And my goal is really do inspire travel, tell stories mm-hmm. about where I've been from a first hand point of view. So rather than me saying, Lisa, you should go to Botswana because of XYZ. Uh, instead, I tell my story about Botswana and hope that it encourages someone to go there on their own. Yeah, you do have a sense of um, place reading your writing and your, your site is beautiful. You, you've just obviously come from a design background, right? But also know how to be a storyteller in that you've got a really good balance of inspiration. So people are excited. I think that sometimes we get so detail oriented as travel writers where it's almost like, here's the list of things, which, you know, that's fine mm-hmm. and it's helpful, but there's got to be that excitement of, you know, planning it for yourself too, or getting help doing it and going there and going somewhere completely unknown. You know yeah. what I mean? Don't yeah. always or go. Or not just have to have every, yeah. so people assume that because I, I'm very detail oriented, that means I have everything planned. Oftentimes our style of travel is to only plan a few things, whether it's a, a restaurant we can't wait to go to. Get the permit or, for the silverbacks. Well, absolutely. You have to do that in advance. <laughs> That is given. Um, but then to leave some things to chance and to explore and to just sit 
at a cafe on a square and watch the world go by instead of having every hour planned with a museum or a, or a specific place to go. That's just not our travel style. Uh, and it works for us to have a little bit leisure time built in. Well, you're soaking up the area. You know, it's like, you know, as we travel, we're pet sitting. So we're actually really getting to know what it's like to live in these places as we travel. Oh, and that's, that's, so it's a slow form of travel. Though mm. I think over COVID, we did like 1500 parks. So that was a little crazy, but hey, I like quiet. slow travel. Slow travel yeah. is a great concept. It is because it's like, if you're having, when you have like this to-do list, it's almost becomes a chore when you're traveling. And, and I don't think you're soaking up an area very well if you're just checking off like you know like the bird list is cool that's investigative cool stuff right that's a treasure hunt but (laughs) when it comes to like checking off every little thing I think we miss things and I think travel writing it used to be a no-no about writing from a personal perspective and Mm. then blogs opened up and said hey move on over and getting blogs to be something important um, it, it just personality won over the muckety mucks basically of what should be in travel writing, you know? Yes. I, um, I agree with that. And I think oftentimes some of the feedback I get uh, is you made me feel like I was there or you make me feel like I want to go there. And in my mind, both of those are wins. That's all I really, yeah, I love that. And restaurants can come and go places change, but if you have a good narrative, of something personal, then that doesn't change. That's, you know, history that is something that is, oh, I want that feeling because that's what you're out when you're traveling is to have experienced something new, you know? So I, it's evergreen in a way, you know, and it's creative too, to be able to put someone in that space. And, you know, it, like when you're on safari, if you don't feel that dirt and know what it's like to have a horse fly get you, like you haven't been on a, so- a safari, you know. It's like it's true. It's true. In fact, uh, anyone who knows me knows that I value my sleep. I'm a big sleeper. I I love to get a good night's sleep, and it's there's very little I would sacrifice for a great night's sleep. But I, ever since our very first night in a tent or a lodge in Africa. All I really want to do is stay up all night to listen to the sound. Oh my gosh. Hyenas at night. I tell people there is nothing like the hyena at night, you know, there's nothing like it. In fact, I try my hardest to stay awake. One of the most exciting experiences I had, aside from hearing the lions roaring in the distance, which is otherworldly. Yeah. uh, One of the best experiences was when we were at a tent in Botswana And they had what they called their resident um, elephant who would wander around and one, and we had canvas sides to our tent. It was like a permanent, permanent structure, but it was a tent. And in the night I heard this low padding of feet walking past and I heard the elephant scrape against the uh, side of the tent and kind of, it was, I held my breath. It was such a beautiful sound. It was so slow and beautiful. And I just, all I want to do is hear more sounds like that. That is my draw to get it's me a back connection. Back. Yeah. You know, we did an interview about a documentary called um, 
elephant refugees. And it was about a resort in Botswana and they were going through a drought and these elephants were dying, like literally in wildlife around them. Cause it just, and, and when we talk about drought in this country, I'm like, dude, <laughs> I've lived through droughts and it's it like real, like you're not allowed to drink water kind of things. I mean, mm-hmm. real, real ones. I mean, I remember in South Africa having to pay a deposit on a bathtub stopper because they were measuring your water and you could only have like an inch of water in your bathtub. That's incredible. And, you know, so it was a really big deal and seeing out in nature, it, it's devastating. And it was devastating what was happening to these elephants in this resort. And they're like, okay, we need tourism to survive. And if we don't survive, the elephants don't have water. So this, this catch 22 position that they mm-hmm. were in and the elephants were going in and opening toilets and getting water. And I, I mean, it was, they were shipping water in. They, this family just worked so hard for these elephants, right? And then people camped. And the elephants would come at night for water, drain the swimming pool. And they're like, well, we shouldn't have the swimming pool because of the water situation. But then the people want the swimming pool. So you don't get the, tur- it's like this mess, right? Yeah. So I encourage you to watch this, but oh, at would- night, yeah, free, it, yeah, elephant refugees. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure it, everyone watch it. Um, <laughs> anyway, the elephants at night would go around, get whatever water they could do, but people are in like little tents, right? We're not talking about the, the glamping style like you're talking about, right? And the elephants walked around the tents, never crushed over them. And we're talking like a whole bunch of them wow. in between the tents in the morning and people would hear what you're talking about. And I'm getting goosebumps because I remember bats and monkeys and all kinds of things coming up in tents and yeah, snakes, all of it. But anyhow, I mean, that we, is we the excitement people. of it. Yeah. In it. It's uh it's like being inside the discovery channel, just, being... but they have this respect for you, you know, they yes. respect, I mean, for them to do that. Now, have you done watering holes at night? No, oh, no way. Oh, you got to go to Kenya. Cause like, this is the coolest thing. And I think it was called treetops. And I don't know if it's still there or not, but as a little girl, like you would, there was like a bar. So, you know, if people are having cocktails and watching the wildlife come to the watering hole, oh. elephants, leopards, lions, you name it, you know, all come to the watering hole and you're watching at night. Seriously, you need to do that. Well, and you're in a tree I'll house. talk to my husband. We, look up, we, we have, have to some... look up treetops and see if it's, still there i don't know it's in the abadir well, Kenya's definitely on our list uh and i mean it really would as as i mentioned earlier too it's something i'm looking forward to doing after my kids are both out of the house yeah. to go to africa spend time a month at a time working in different places whether it be uh with the silverbacks for instance um one of the things i was most impressed with with uganda uh, and oftentimes people have asked me, why did I choose Uganda over Rwanda? Because the silverbacks. The silverbacks everyone thinks of, Rwanda immediately. Pardon? Everyone thinks of Rwanda immediately. They do. Um, they think of Rwanda because they were sort of first with the tourism around the silverbacks. So for people who don't know, and I didn't know this until I researched it, silverback gorillas are in no zoos around the world. They are There are none in comp- captivity. The only place you could see them in the entire world is the parks that sort of um, are at the corners of Congo, Uganda, and Rwanda. So that's really the 
the area that they are in the world. And Rwanda was on the map first when it came to tourism for the silverbacks. Um, their permits are much more expensive. I think when I went to Uganda um, at the time, the Rwanda permits were fifteen hundred a trek. So we're talking about fifteen hundred dollars for that one, one hour. Uh, and in Uganda, it was half the price. Um, also, we chose Uganda because it seemed a little bit more off the beaten path um, as far as tourism went. It wasn't as pretty and buttoned up as Rwanda mm-hmm. was. And we had this amazing experience where, uh, so the Bwindi Impenetrable National Park is where the silverbacks are, the families live. And they're habituated, which means that they are accustomed to seeing humans um, you can't get close to them, but they're not um, going to lash out at you unless you, of course, are, you know, coming for them or going towards their babies. They're used to humans. Uh, and I think one of the most incredible things I learned about this and going back to your slow travel, uh, my friend and I were discouraged because when we got our permits, we discovered that the only permits we could get were for an entrance to the park that was two hours away from where our hotel was. And our hotel was in the park mm. near of five minutes away from a different entrance. So we had to travel two hours to a different entrance, even though we had one literally on our doorstep, just because of the way that the flow of tourism could go. So we woke up at five in the morning to get to the Ruhiga, Ruhija entra- entrance by seven. It was the most beautiful drive. We saw the sunrise over the tea tea fields. We saw people working. We went through towns. We saw kids on the road. An experience we never would have had had we gone five minutes from our hotel into the entrance of the park. It reminded me that that was a a happy accident. Um, Something we thought we were going to dread, a two-hour Jeep ride at 5 a.m. turned out to be a highlight of our trip. So it just goes to show that um, travel is not perfect. It shouldn't be. And oftentimes no. those imperfections uh, are become these wonderful experiences. I agree that just the same thing happened. Um, we, we go to the Sequoias a lot, Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks in, in Central California and cover them a lot um, every month, actually. And <clears throat> you can stay in the park. Um, and with us, with the, our work and podcasting everything we're like okay we want to do that but like what do we do with our stuff what it's like a mess for us sometimes the way we travel right so anyway we stayed in one of the neighboring towns there's visalia there's three rivers three rivers is right at the entrance of sequoia national park we've done both but to get into the actual thing to the top where the the big sequoias are takes like an hour almost and like an hour and a half i think from visalia the city but now you know we're one of those that I want to see the sunrise. I'm always like, we have to be there at dawn and dusk. That's when you see the animals. Mm-hmm. And I swear, I remember that first time Nancy and I were driving up into the sequoias. I don't, I'm wondering if they had it open or closed. But anyway, we got in and we're winding our way up the foothills. So we don't really see what's going on too much in the foothills. We get to the top and we're seeing the sun come up like you wouldn't believe. And it was just like, oh man, over this whole valley. We get into the giant forest and the temperature just drops, right? And it's like, because you're up in the top, you're in the Sierras and these, you know, jaw dropped, like these trees are massive, you know, and we drive in slowly and lo and behold, there's a bear right there. Wow. And I'm like, all right. And then we went 
towards like, I think it was some picnic area. I think one of us had to go to the bathroom or something. There's a bear. And I'm like, dude, like if we, like what would we have gotten up as early? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like when it, everything, when things are too convenient, yes. you don't understand how things work in an area. Yeah. You knew though, you knew that the wildlife, what, maybe not everybody knows this, but which is why early morning game drives and those um, dust oh. game drives are so important. And the animals are always resting during the day and uh, mm-hmm. sleeping. Yeah. Now, besides animals, right? Because I'll talk about animals all day long. You'll never pull me out of it. Um, let's talk about food and lodging. Africa to me, I mean, I don't care if you're tenting it or you are like the resorts. I don't know. They have this. I don't, I've never experienced anything like it anywhere else in the world. There's just, there's something magical about them. They have, they understand the connection to nature. Even if you're staying in the city, there's this connection with Mm -hmm. where you're staying. Clean hospitality is second to none. I mean, I think they really understand tourism. Like, really. They do. They really do. And they always seem to get it right. And it's always in the details. I mean, uh, the trackers and the guides are so are such experts in their field that you feel trust immediately. I've never had an experience where I didn't trust our tracker, our driver, our guide. Uh, but as far as the service in the hotels, it's it's it must just be built in uh, the way that it feels familial when you go to any of these places. Uh, and I think. Also, there's this built-in community of like-minded people who go to these places in the first place that everybody is sitting around with your guides at night, swapping stories about what you saw that day, who saw a kill, who saw a herd of elephants, who saw a leopard in a tree. Everybody wants to share their stories and their photos. Um, So I think that that is all built into the nature of a trip like this to begin with. And then you layer on top of it how you don't really need much in the bush. You need a pair of binoculars. You need a comf- a, a bed. Oftentimes um, you slide into bed at night and there's a hot water bottle by your feet that's already toasty. Oh, man, I haven't had one of those since we lived there. <laughs> I try to recreate that at home. It's just not the same. Uh, but there's so many little touches. One place we went to in Botswana, this small camp had watercolors and an easel. Uh, they had a wine, a wine area that you could go down and pick any bottle of wine you wanted. And these were not over the top places. These were simple places. Uh, but every single touch and detail, uh, made sense. And there's nothing like dining in the bush. Like on a, the, these Jeep tours, a lot of them, and I think half my Facebook friends are tour guides. Um, and they're always showing like, here it is. All right. It's lunchtime. They set up, you know, under a tree kind of thing. Make sure there's no mambas in the tree or boomslongs or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, they set up like here and you're going to have a little wine. And next thing you know, this whole meal comes out. Like how it, it's insane. I, I remember Nancy was talking about this and I was a kid. So I wasn't allowed to imbibe, you know. We are in um, Kenya, Mombasa, and they would come with a rum drink in a pineapple and <laughs> they would come and they were like here and go away. And next thing you know, they'd come back with the second one. Like how it was like just this, I don't know. And it like you're saying, it wasn't over the top. 
I think part of it too is that it's so unlike anything we can experience here in our normal lives. It's as different as being on the moon. It's just such a different world. I want to go to Africa instead. Thank you. Yeah, same. I don't care about same. this moon propagation thing. I do, <laughs> I think though that that's it's so unique and so otherworldly that that is part of why everything about it is so to use an overused word magical. It's just mm. uh the sounds are different, the stars are different, the sky is dark. Uh dark unlike anything I see um in my city life and I know that I appreciate it. Um, I appreciate all of it. I appreciate being able to have a sundowner over the Delta, watching hippos pop their heads up and just realize how oh, man. visual this is. Oh, seeing the hippos. Seriously. They are that, scary. Just to be able to, I know, Nancy got charged by one. They are, on I think, aren't they the most, those in the um, they haul. water buffalo are the most dangerous. Yeah. yeah, she was, that's when she worked for Joy Adamson and Joy Adamson's like, here, go to he had a really weird way of teaching you about wildlife. It's like, here, let's really scare the crap out of you. <laughs> Nancy's like down there sketching, right? And and here comes the hippo. And Nancy's like, oh, cool. Next thing you know, and there's got to, I think there had to be a baby. This hippo comes charging and she has to get up the hill before this. And Joy Adamson's sitting there going, you'll never do that again, will you? Like, that is not for me. The first of all, that, hippos fast also they don't look at it but they apparent i've never seen one run but I they move they're, fast. they're incredibly fast you don't be fooled by the blubber same I'm with not. rhinos don't we've been charged by rhinos we've been charged by elephants we've been charged by god you're lucky you're here uh, yeah really <laughs> i mean it <laughs> for a lot of things but you learn you know you learn and um you know like you say, have that healthy respect, you know, and um, your guides really do know the wildlife. They do. They live in it. They love them, you know, and yes, there's some that hunt subsistence hunting and stuff like that. But, you know, the, they understand tracking more than they you do. Know. It's so impressive. Um, the difference between the South Africa game drives and the Botswana ones were pretty stark in South Africa. As I said, there were game parks. Um, they had guns. They didn't use them, but they had guns at the mm-hmm. Jeeps. Uh, in Botswana, the guides don't have guns, uh, which was a little unnerving at first, but in after having been in South Africa first. But when we talked to our guide, um, his name was Foster in Botswana, we had this one situation where our Jeep stopped uh, among a pride of lions, and the lions were curious, and they came up right up to the Jeep, which is open, the Land Rover, and sat in the shade of the mm-hmm. Land Rover, just looking up. I mean, we were, I mean, it's like looking out your car window with the, with yeah, the yeah. wide open. And I'm thinking, Foster doesn't have a gun. What what the hell is going on here? And later, after um, we all could breathe again and we moved on, he cut the engine and we sat there for a long time. Uh, I asked him, how did you know that the lion wasn't going to attack? And he never takes his eyes off the eyes of the animal or the body movements. He -hmm. said he could tell from the, from the way, the twitch of an eye or the, or the, Mm -hmm. the body movement or a tremor, what the lion is going to do. Yeah. That takes 
skill research time. Uh, and I was in absolute awe of, of him. And the fact that he laid down, that was like, I'm just chilling out in the shade. And they're used to, they do mess with uh, Jeeps. They know what you're doing. You know, it's there. Um, I mean, we went through Africa without guns. And I mean, I was, you know, single mom here, you know, all over Africa. And I don't know, I feel like that can sometimes get you into more trouble. And then maybe we got out of a lot of trouble because we're women. I don't know. Like, you know, I don't know how we got through it all, but we did. did. And it's um, the animals you you learn a lot, really, just by observing, Mm -hmm. um, watching their behavior. And it becomes patterns. And that's how you know to look for them at certain places, certain times, certain habitats. Well, you know, like Jeranook. Have you seen a Jeranook yet? No. Oh, my God. You need to see a Jeranook. I have to Google it right after because I don't even know what it is. They have these really super long um, necks. So like, you know, everything has a different uh, place to eat of a bush. So mm-hmm. like they eat the higher part of an acacia, whereas, you know, an impala is grazing underneath and everybody has a different station and they stop eating when the leaves get like, man, eh, that's, oh, that's, you know, because the leaves don't want to be over pruned. Nature does its own job. Here we are as gardeners. We're like, chop, chop, chop. Well, I have a hard time about pruning. That's not my thing. I, I just <laughs> let it all go. Let it go. Nature knows what she's doing. But like when you and you're dealing with wildlife, you know, but I think in this country, absolutely go to our parks, look at Yellowstone, look at places we have, you know, with wildlife. And there's a respect that we need to learn even from that. You see people going out there with, you know, seen people try to get next to an, an elk, a mom and baby try to put their baby next to them. I'm like, Oh dude, oh, you're yeah. going to get in. You're going to get it. So I think there's something to be taught also by these conversations. And if you're with a guide, I think you learn, you learn about the animals. And so you have a better appreciation and then you may not be one of those idiots. <laughs> Well, also, you see much more, um, at least in our case. Mm. The trackers are, they can spot, they could spot a leopard from a mile away or a cheetah, something we would not see. The way you were talking earlier about people walking by a fawn and a, a deer when yeah. it's three feet away from them. The, the, one of the many things that's great about having a guide, which I would highly recommend for anyone, especially their first time going to Africa, Mm. you're going to get so much more out of it. Um, You're going to see much more and you're going to feel safer. And they're so nice. They're so nice. You get to learn what Africa's like, you know, Um, you you really, and they become friends, you know, they really do. There's a, it's a um, immersion, you know, in a way, you know, real community. I still keep in touch with a, our guide from Uganda and I do every once in a while try to find our wonderful guide from Botswana. Uh, But all of our guides um, have been even from our very first trip 20 years ago in Tanzania. I'll just never forget it. That's awesome. Now. Okay. Before you go, I want to know about food. What did you enjoy eating in Africa? I mean, you've done, I mean, you've got to go to Morocco down to South Africa. We got wine number one in South Africa. Well, I mean, starting from, I love, we love all food. We're big foodies. We often will book a restaurant before we even book our flights if there's some great restaurant (laughs) we want to try. So for instance, uh, when we went to South Africa, there was a restaurant called the Test Kitchen that we really wanted to try in Cape Town. We made sure we got a reservation there. And that was definitely a more high-end restaurant. But everything from having a braai, which like a a, a roast, uh, 
um, traditional African roast to we've tried um, ostrich. We've tried zebra. We've tried, I mean, when we say venison here in the U.S., we think deer. When you say venison in Africa, it could be any number of, uh, it could, I guess, zebra included. A lot of impala, mostly impala and um, kudu. We tried, I think we may have tried crocodile. Does that make sense? We tried everything. We just, um, we went out to the vineyards and had lovely meals outside and then when we were in Morocco, we would have rooftop restaurants that oh, had wow. um, like meze style overlooking the souks. Did uh, you have the mint tea? Yes. We went out to the Atlas Mountains oh. and went to a Berber village and had a traditional. No way. That's cool. Ceremony. We could, there's no cars there. We, we had to hike for a few hours. And it's just, there's so much. I mean, hiking on it is its own whole category, whether in the Atlas Mountains or even in Uganda, when you're getting to the Silverbacks, there's a lot of act- activity that is highly, um, uh, you know, active, involved, where you're um, burning calories in a great way and earning your meals. Yeah, it's hiking is the best. There's nothing like a good hike. It, there just isn't. And and hiking in Africa to me is amazing. I mean, we we got ourselves in a lot of trouble in some hikes. Like really, <laughs> we, we ended up in different countries sometimes by accident and not knowing where we were. Like we had a farmer pick us up, put in the back of his bucky and he's like, you girls shouldn't be here. And we're like, where are we? <laughs> you know, it, but it's, but it's, it's awesome in South Africa. I know when you, you were in the Cape area, you got to see some of the proteas and the little pin cushions. And did you see the sugar birds when you were out there? And, uh, oh, pen- no. and, and penguins. You we saw, saw penguins. penguins. We went to Boulder Beach. Okay. Boulder Beach. That's all the hoop area. It's, there's I mean, so much the, to see. And when we were in South Africa and we worked in tourism, you know, especially with Nancy's magazine and we actually traveled the country for two years with her artwork and, um, went every single place in South Africa that you can imagine. And, um, they, the tourism slogan then was South Africa is a world in one country. And I really believe that because, I mean, you've got good wine. We've seen ostrich walk the beach in Paternoster, you know, <laughs> you can go up to Namibia and see lions on the beach. I mean, it's crazy, you know, yeah. so. I don't know if they, is it? Yeah, it is Namibia. One time it was Southwest Africa. Now I'm all like messed up. But anyway, it's, it's awesome. It's, I'm so glad you experienced it. How are you enjoying being a member of IFTWA, the International Food, Wine, Travel Writers Association? I love it. I keep up with it as much as possible. I'm always reading it. Um, I'm thrilled to be a member. Um, and I'm really grateful because that's how I met you. And I, I know we're cool. I'm, and we get to meet you and have this awesome conversation about Africa, you know? It is. It is. In fact, um, now I'm just sort of so jazzed by all this. I just might have to just start doing some research into uh, possibly Namibia. You just piqued oh, yeah. my interest. I know. I want to do the Botswana, the Okavango swamp, you know. Well, and, we can swap information. Cool. Cool. Let's do it. Let's just go on a trek. Let's, I, I feel like we need to all go travel now. I, know. <laughs> I think our job is done. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I know I want to go. <laughs> I want to go. I want to go. Everyone uh, follow Jamie and her adventures. She's on Instagram as well as I am lost and found. I love that name, but go to her site. I am lost and You'll see a lot of her articles on Africa um, under the food and lodging section, under the travel section. 
and around the world, Antarctica, you name it, even the Blue Ridge Mountains where we are right now. Uh, so check it out. And also we want to thank our friends, the International Food Wine Travel Writers Association. They just finished up their big annual conference, which was a cruise uh, from British Columbia down to L.A. with uh, the Discovery Princess Cruise Line, which was awesome. Uh, keep up with them at ifwtwa.org. And, well, of course, Big Blend Radio, we air every single day, sometimes two to three shows a day because we're a little crazy. So keep <laughs> up with us at bigblendradio.com. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you. I had a great time. Me too. Alan Lee, 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 Al